We're finishing the book of Numbers today. We started it last year, and we're finishing it this year. <clears throat> and I thought that maybe the best thing to do today was to consider what might be said in light of the whole telling. So um, in a moment, you're going to watch a little uh, video. It's by an organization called The Bible Project, and they, I think you'll see this, they do a pretty strong job at telling the story of the Bible. So uh, go ahead and roll the film, Ryan. The book of Numbers gets overlooked partly because it has a really boring name, which is a shame. In the Hebrew tradition, the book's name is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And it's an epic travelogue about Israel's journey through the desert on their way to the land promised to Abraham. Now this pilgrimage should only take about two weeks on foot. But instead, it takes them about 40 years. That's crazy. It's practically half of someone's lifetime. Yeah, it's a very long camping trip with lots of interesting stories. But let's remember, it's most helpful to back up and start with how this book is designed. Right. So the book is broken up into five sections. There are three wilderness locations broken up by two road trips that link all the pieces together. The first wilderness section is Mount Sinai, right here on the map. And then in the second section, they travel to a region called Paran. A whole bunch of things happen here in the wilderness of Paran. And then in this fourth section is Israel's road trip to Moab. The book ends with a large section in the wilderness of Moab, right across the Jordan River from the Promised Land. Now, through all of these sections, the storyline just flows like a gripping, dramatic movie. Everything starts great, but then the trip goes horribly wrong, and it all ends with the final redemptive moment, the surprising act of God's grace. So let's jump into this story. It all begins at the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and we've become really familiar with this mountain. Yeah, if you remember, Israel came here after Egypt, and they formed a covenant with God here, got the Ten Commandments here, built the tabernacle here, and they've been at this mountain for one full year. And now they take a census to number the people as they prepare to leave. Right, and they're given these instructions for how to organize all those people in the camp. God's presence in the tabernacle, and then the tribe of Levi and the priests around it, and then the rest of the tribes around them. And this pattern, it's this visual symbol for how God's holiness is at the center of their existence as a people. And they're told that when the cloud of God's presence moves, they're to pack up and travel with it. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant is carried by the Levites out in front, and then the tribe of Judah, and on and on. And this order is also a symbol for how God's holy presence is their leader and guide through the wilderness. We begin the second section of the book with enthusiasm as they leave Mount Sinai and travel up the Paran. God's with them, everything's organized. This is going to be great. But it's not great. After just three days on the road, the people are complaining about their hunger and thirst. And then even Moses' brother and sister start bad-mouthing him in front of all the people. Not a great start. But now we're into the third section, the wilderness of Paran. This is where they send the 12 spies to scout out the promised land. Two of those spies come back, and they're really optimistic. But the other ten are freaked out, and they don't trust God, and they go around saying, we're going to get annihilated in there. And so they start a mutiny, and they try to appoint a new leader who's going to take all the people back to Egypt. And so basically, they are refusing to go into the promised land, and God honors their choice. He says that this generation is going to wander for 40 years and die in the wilderness, and only their kids will get to enter the promised land. You know, this story here gets brought up many times in the Bible by different authors. Yeah, and it always serves as a reminder that while God remains faithful to his people and his promises, 
he will honor their choices. He'll, he'll let them waste their whole lives if they choose to live in rebellion. Okay, so the trip's been a disaster so far. And it gets worse here in this fourth section as they're traveling to Moab. Even Moses has a moment of rebellion and is disqualified from entering the promised land. Then there's another rebellion among the people that results in this snake attack. And what makes all these rebellions even worse is that every step of the way, God has been providing. He's been offering forgiveness. He's been giving them food and water and this crazy stuff called manna. Yeah, what is that stuff? Yeah, no, no idea. But in spite of all this, they keep complaining. And they say that they wish they had died in slavery in Egypt. <coughs> if I was God, I would just give up on these guys. You would think. But that's what makes this story in the final section so surprising. Israel has just arrived in Moab. And the king of Moab, he's freaked out that this huge group of people is traveling through his land. So he hires this pagan sorcerer named Balaam to pronounce curses on them. This guy means business. Yeah, and so Balaam, he says, okay, I'm going to pray to the Hebrew god and let's see what happens. And three different times he attempts to curse them, but each time he finds that he can utter only blessing. Most surprising is the last blessing where he prophesies that out of Israel will rise a victorious king. And this king is somehow going to be connected to God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations through this family. So here's Israel rebelling down in the camp, totally unaware that up in the hills, God is protecting and even blessing them. The book ends here in Moab. Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land. They count up everyone again, just like at the beginning. They're leaving the old generation behind, including Moses. But before they leave Moses, he gives them his last words of warning and wisdom. And that speech is what the next book, Deuteronomy, is all about. Pretty good, huh? It's helpful. They're all that way. So if you, it's called the Bible Project. <clears throat> so if that helps you read the Bible, I encourage you to use them. Kind of like the video, I'd like for us to look at the the story as the whole today. And it's helpful because the story of Numbers begins with a census, and it ends with a census. It begins with Numbers, and it ends with Numbers. <clears throat> accounting. And all week I've been thinking about the significance of taking a census. Why would they do that? And uh, actually earlier this week, uh, I reflected on it. A friend of mine told me, he's a teacher, he said not too many weeks ago they took their whole seventh grade class to Franklin Institute. Something like 350 kids. And uh, when you do something like that, you count. You count and you recount and you, over, you know, no teachers have ever said like to the whole seventh grade, like you've never waved them away on a bus, like have fun, hope you're doing well. No, you get on the bus with them. You always have the bus counter who sort of does the, the head count on the bus. And then there's parents and chaperones that are embedded in the crowd who have their five or six kids and you count. All day long, they go in the bathroom and you count. They come out of the bathroom and you count. You go into the IMAX and you count. They go through the heart and you wait on the other side of the heart and you count them as they come out. Yeah, that's your job is to account for these people. And while I don't think the Lord's concerned that the tribe of Reuben is going to wander away in the desert, uh, I do think there, there's a similarity in the accounting. The census 
is the process of taking account. And it's intended for two big reasons. The first is, they're about to go to war. So it's worth noting, and this is, by the way, you can look in the first chapter of Numbers, if you want to open your Bible, it's the first chapter of Numbers. They only count men of fighting age. And I used to find that curious. Why aren't you worried about the whole number? Well, the reason they're not worried about the whole number is because they're actually taking stock of the men of fighting age because they're about to go to war. They're about to go into the land of promise and conquer it. And they need to know how many from each tribe should they expect to be able to marshal. And that number is based upon their whole. So that's the first reason that they make an accounting is what is the appropriate tribal contribution towards battle. And the second reason that they take accounting is to determine um, the portion of the land that they're going to receive. So the promised land is going to be divided by the tribes and they want to make sure that the larger tribes get a larger portion of the land and that the smaller tribes get a smaller portion of the land so that there's a sense of equity in the way that people settle. You don't want the large tribes kind of living on top of themselves with the small tribes sort of arrayed in this you know, vast openness. So they're, they're taking a census to gain a sense of who they are in light of the promise of God. God is going to give us this land. How are we going to take it? And how are we going to settle in it? Now, the the strange thing about numbers, like the video showed, is that the first census they take uh, is 40 years away from the promised land. It wasn't intended to be that way, but it was that way. In fact, in Numbers 1, when they settle there, they've been at the mountain of God for exactly a year. And exactly a year after leaving Egypt, the Lord says, count your people up. Take this accounting because we're going to the promised land. They count, they celebrate Passover, and they leave. And when they leave, there's a strong sense. There's a a strong conquesting sense like we're heading to the promised land. In fact, this is what Moses would cry when, when the cloud of God would rise and they would move on. He would say this. This is in Numbers chapter 10. He'd say, arise, O Lord, and scatter your foes. Arise and scatter them. I mean, that's, that language, why would they be saying that in Numbers chapter 10 if they had anticipated wandering in a wilderness for 40 years? They're going somewhere. But they don't. Right through their rebellion, they wander for 40 years. And the entire generations are replaced So here's something interesting. In the first census, in Numbers chapter 1, when you come to the end of it, if you add all the men of fighting age up, you end up with a number 603,550 people. That's the accounting of the people in Numbers chapter 1 and 2. Forty years passes, and they're now at the very end of the book. In fact, the next census is Numbers chapter 26. So if you went all the way there, in Numbers chapter 26, 40 years later, they do another counting. And when they come up with this counting, the number is 601,730. It's within a rounding error of the exact same number. 
It's nearly the exact same number, and yet, except for two people, it's there's not a single person there that was counted before. Forty years of wandering in a wilderness, and they come out ready to go into the promised land, and they are essentially the same. And if you, th- if you think about the whole number, just the whole number is significantly larger than 601,000. It's probably three to four times that number when you think of men, women, and children involved in this. this. It's something that's a, a tantamount to the, the Philadelphia metropolitan populace, something like two to three million people is who's, who's ready to go into the land of promise. And this two million plus people have been for 40 years wandering in a territory that's unsustainable, in which nobody can really live. Two million people have been living. This is why the New Testament, uh, this is why when we get to the New Testament, and even when in the ministry of Jesus there's still so much talk about the faithfulness of God to them in the wilderness. Because the, the lasting impression of this story is God has carried us these 40 years and not allowed us to perish. Almost the same number. There's a few reflections I'd like to make on this just as we, we take the whole in mind. And the first is that God is a promise keeper. God keeps the promises he makes to people. That's what this this story tells us that. I brought you out of Egypt. We might even say this, despite, despite our inability to remain faithful, God shows himself a promise keeper. Like despite all of the twists and turns, that come, not because the Lord is brainstorming twists and turns for our life, but many of the twists and turns that come because of our sinful decisions and our own wickedness and our inadequacy to be like him, despite all of that, God will bring to the end the people that are his. I think this is valuable to know and to believe. It's just part of who your faith is because in any given moment, it will not feel this way. In the various moments of the 40 years of wandering, God did not necessarily appear faithful to his promises. I mean, there's opportunity after event, after opportunity after event throughout the whole book of Numbers where God would have appeared in the moment to be their enemy. I mean, God's sending serpents. God's sending a plague. God's sending fire. God's the one who's opening the earth and swallowing up people. God's the one who's allowing them to go hungry. God's the one who's leading them to places where there is no water. In the moments, in the hard-pressed moments of your life and their life and our life, God does not appear in the moment to be a triumphant promise keeper. If you step back, you notice on the whole, he is. 
Like in the moment, you may feel, you may be crying out, where's God in the moment? And it's important in our lives to recognize that life's not lived in the moment. Life is lived across many, many moments. And when you live your life in Christ, he will prove himself faithful. In fact, the Bible ends. This is, by the way, why I think we're given the book of Revelation, so a, a, a book given to us about what has not yet happened. I think it's given to the church to tell us God will prove himself faithful. Don't worry. At the end, God will bring everybody to him that belongs to him. Because, you know, if we could believe in the crucifixion of Christ, believe in the resurrection of Christ, and then give our lives to it, unsure of, well, where are we headed? Where are we going? But the way the Bible ends is, I'm bringing you to myself. I'm literally bringing you to myself. In fact, in Revelation, there is actually a sort of census. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but there's a sort of census. In the early part of Revelation, God's in his throne and around him. John takes an account. Around him are the 12 tribes of Israel, right? and there's 12,000 in each tribe. It's apocalyptic language. It's, it's saying the perfect number of my people are present. They're all gathered. They're fully accounted for. In fact, he makes sure to say a little bit later, oh, by the way, every nation is there. Every tribe is there. Every tongue is there. Every people is there. Because God said he would do it. Because he is entirely faithful to his promise. And I would, it's an offering at some level to say to you, if you're in a difficult place, if you're hard-pressed, and you look out and you go, can I just tell you, it doesn't feel like I'm a child of the promise right now. I, I want you to know that the whole story says, keep walking. Like he'll bring you in. He will literally bring you to himself one day. <clears throat> There's a conviction alongside of this. So I have this hope. And alongside of it is a conviction, <clears throat> which is I recognize in the story that the Lord doesn't blink twice about bypassing a whole generation and turning to their children. In other words, the faithlessness of a person doesn't challenge the promise-keeping ability of God. Your ability or your inability to follow him, your choice to follow him or your choice not to follow him, your refusal to honor him as God or your choice to honor him as God, whatever your choice is has no bearing as to whether he's an honoring God and to whether he's done his... He has already secured the promise through Jesus Christ. It's already been done. Nothing needs to be done. You... The salvation that's available to all of mankind is already entirely available to everyone. And whether you choose to trust him in the wilderness or not is up to you. I mean, it's the convictions here. 
an entire generation is left to die based upon their choice. This story of the wilderness travels in the, traveled in the heart of Israel for thousands of years. It, it remains a part of their story. And by the time you get to Jesus, there's many times in the ministry of Christ where the language that's exchanging between Jesus and the Pharisees or Jesus and the apostles is wrapped up. It's, there's overtones that are pointing to this time in the wilderness. It's so much a part of the, their thought of the faithlessness of the people and yet the faithfulness of God in these 40 years is such a deep part of who they are. I want to read one for you. This is John chapter 6. Because we're really not that different a kind of people. And this really is a story for us. <clears throat> but in this section of John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He did this amazing miracle. Almost as impressive as parting the Red Sea, right? Just a clear sign of the greatness of Christ and the presence of God in his life. Unmistakable undeniable. This is, John 6 is the next morning. And the next morning, the people are grumbling and they, they already are discontent with one miracle. They want another miracle. If you're really of God, you should do this like every day. But I wanted you to hear the exchange. And as you listen to the exchange, I want you to hear the overtones of the wilderness I want you to hear the overtones of the manna and of thirst and of wandering and even of the staff with the serpent raised up. The whole, almost all of numbers is assumed in this moment. So the people, they come to Jesus and they say in the 30th verse, then what sign do you do? By the way, this is the day after he fed 5,000. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Do you hear he's counting? He's taking account. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. 
If you're in Christ, you're counted in the number. But God will bring you to the promised land. He, he's the light that guides us through the wilderness. And he'll bring us there. The question that remains for us is which, which census are you a part of? Are you a part of the generation that made a choice? God is not good. Or in hardship, this promise is not worth it. Or are you one who numbers with the Lord? Let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, we give you thanks for this morning. We thank you for the faithful witness of those who were baptized. We thank you for the testimony of Scripture, for the opportunity to confess to you in prayer. Lord, we confess to you that there may be days where we find ourselves with a sense of need or in a sense of loneliness. But Lord, we, we pray you would give us the faith to know that you are keeping your promise and you are bringing us to you. We ask, Lord, that this prayer would be prayed not only as individuals, but we would recognize that you dealt with us as a people. So we lift up this whole church to you that we might move together, be sensitive to one another, encourage one another in the faith respond to one another as you would have us, that we'd not be a tribe of fear, but that we would have a bold confidence that you're leading us. We pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.